All right, well, happy Lord's Day, everyone. So thrilled that you are here with us worshiping. Uh, This is a special Lord's Day because uh, it's traditionally on the church calendar uh, called Palm Sunday. And if you're wondering, you know, what's Palm Sunday and isn't that something that we usually go to in Matthew 21 and have a specific sermon always on that, um, uh, part of our conviction as a church is that... uh, uh, All of Christ is found all throughout the Bible, and we don't necessarily have to uh, be governed by a certain calendar to to, to preach or to feel a certain way that we can, we know that as we go through the Word of God, it expounds the glory and the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we called our series, right? Uh, This is the last week in our series, The Gospel According to Exodus. Exodus, there's no mention um, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, here in the book of Exodus. But in, a, in, in another sense, it's just littered fill. It's just filled to the brim with all of what Jesus did and accomplished in our place um, at Calvary. And so um, what I thought was cool about uh, ending our Exodus series right here is kind of uh, paying, paying honor to the church calendar by... Uh, Palm Sunday, and if you know anything about Palm Sunday, or if you grew up in a in a church like I did, where we went to Sunday school and we had palm, our teachers handed us palm branches and we kind of um, waved them around and then we laid them down and we kind of played out the whole act of uh, Jesus walking on the colt of a donkey and we said Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes on in the name of the Lord. Uh, the beauty of this passage today is they knew. what the name of the Lord actually meant because of Exodus 34. The entire Israelite nation knew what the the gravity of the name of the Lord based on Exodus 34, what Davis just read for us. This is wildly important. This is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. This is one of the most quoted passages in all of Scripture because God declares His name to us. He declares His name to His people. And in the, uh, the understanding of who he is, and by the declaration of his name, you know what happens? He defines who he is. He defines who he is. In uh, Matthew, let me just read this passage um, so you know it. I kind of already shared it. But the, a massive crowd was spread um, throughout the land, and cloaks were thrown on the, the roads, and others cut branches of trees and spread them out on the road. And the clouds that were the crowds that went Ahead of him, and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem to be considered as the spotless Lamb of God. Seven days he had to be there to, um, you had to set the Lamb aside to make sure that he was without spot or wrinkle. And this is the inauguration of Jesus proving himself to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So what do we learn from Exodus chapter 34 about um, that really informs Jesus being the son of David, Hosanna, uh, blessed, the blessed one, the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord? Well, what we see here in this passage is the tension of the glory of God revealed in his name, in declaring his name. If you remember the the context here, which I think is important, of what's going on. Remember Moses said, show me your glory. How did did God respond to Moses whenever he was like, show me your glory? He said, cool. No. He said, can't do that or you'll die. 
instantly. Why? Because God is so utterly different. He's so utterly separate from us. Us coming close to God in our sinful selves is like a tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. Can't happen. And God declares that to Moses. He says, you can't experience the fullness of my glory. You can't handle me face to face. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand. And you will see something of the glory of God, but not the fullness of it, because that will kill you. And I will be gracious to you to allow you to see something of the glory of God. He, he, he describes it here in Exodus 34. He says, I'll let you see the back of me. The back of me. Not as glorious as seeing me face, face to face. And then he declares his name. He declares his name. And I just want to highlight uh, the main tension here of God's glory in verses 6 and 7. Look, he says, I am the Lord. The Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgressions and sin. This is good news, right? This is really, really good news. I want this God. I want this God on my side. And then in the middle of the verse, in the middle of verse 7, he switches and says, but will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It says in the same verse. Keeping steadfast love, mercy, grace, forgiveness of transgressions and sin, but will no, will by no means pardon anyone who's ever sinned. Do you see the tension? How can God be true and be both these things at the exact same time? Jewish scholars, as I was studying this, Jewish commentators, as, they, as I was looking through this, it's like, what do you say about this? Because remember, their canon, their, their, their Bible ends at the book of Malachi, ends at the closing of the Old Testament. They, they don't receive Christ as Lord and, sa and Savior. He, they don't receive Christ as the Messiah. And so what do they do with Exodus chapter 34? One very thoughtful Jewish commentator said this, and I thought it was so interesting. He says the exact same thing that the woman of the well, at the well said. He said, there is a mystery with how God will show steadfast love to a thousand generations, but will by no means clear the guilty since we have all sinned. And then he says this, when Messiah shows up, he will teach us all these things. <laughs> when the Messiah shows up. See, they don't think Jesus was the one. And so this guy was so thoughtful, so honest, that there's this tension that cannot be reconciled with reason. This, this causes a mystery in the person of God. This causes a mystery in the person of God. And so what do we have to see here? What do we have to see here? We have to see the ultimateness, the penultimateness of God's glory wrapped up in his name. Wrapped up in his name. And see, what's so cool about this passage is he gives a name, and in the Old Testament, uh, names in the Old Testament had meaning of kind of who you were and, and what you were going to be about. And it was kind of like a, a prophetic sign of this is what we want them to grow up into. And God, and they get this from God himself, because whenever God gives his name Yahweh here, he, tries to def he distinctly defines what he means by this is who I am. The tension between his goodness of showing steadfast love, mercy, and grace, and also 
by no means clearing the guilty. And so let's define those two things. Let's kind of dive into one at a time. What does it mean for God to wrap up his goodness in the truth, in the truth of who he is as a just God? All right? Let's talk about that, and then let's talk about the beauty, the beauty of the gospel and how he shows steadfast love, mercy, and grace to a thousand generations. Okay? Well, let's start out with, quickly, the gospel. What is the gospel? It is um, the story of God's life, death, resurrection as he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserved in our place, and then resurrected for the justification of our sins so that we can be reconciled and made right with God. And all those that have faith in that good news will be saved. That is part of the glory of the gospel. And what I mean by faith is very important. Because a lot of times, as soon as I said faith, and as soon as I said, here's the gospel, I got glossed over eyes. I said, heard this a thousand times. Went to the vacation Bible school. Went to the Sunday school class. Raised my hand. Filled out the card. Did all of that. I don't need to have a deeper understanding of the gospel, Cody. Show me the deeper things of God. Friend. Friend. Our secular culture has destroyed what it means to have faith. See, I have faith. I had faith two weeks ago that Texas Tech was going to win the national championship in the NCAA basketball tournament. I went to Texas Tech. I enjoyed my time there. I remember them as a football school. They have evolved into a basketball school. And then, you know what happened? They lost in the second round. But my faith, according to the secular definition, was, was still faith, right? I, I, I filled out the card. I filled out the bracket. I, I, proved to it, I proved to you a little bit. Like, look, Texas Tech is going to win. I said it. I had faith that they were going to do it. But that, is that what the Bible describes as faith? No. No. That's, that's wishful thinking. There's a big difference in having faith in something as like, I, oh, I hope this is kind of true, maybe, and what the Bible describes as faith. You know what the Bible describes as faith? Knowledge. Do you have knowledge that that uh, definition of the gospel is actually true and effectual for you? Do you believe that 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 is what the Bible describes as good news come from God, that God sent his son to live, die, resurrect in your place, and it's effectually for you? Do you have agreement that 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 is actually true and effectual in your heart and in your person, that whenever Christ died on the cross, it was for you? The sins that he, uh, the life that he lived was thinking of you, knowing that you were not perfect, you were not able to do it. Do you, did you apply, have you applied that to your own life and into your own heart? And uh, faith, that, I'm not stopping with faith there because the Bible also says that you have to have a deep love commitment. That's what faith is. Faith isn't just knowledge and agreement with the knowledge. It has to be also a deep love commitment to where the centerpiece of your life, listen to me, eye contact, the centerpiece of your life right now is revolved around the good news of the gospel. The the, the most defining thing of who you are as a person is Jesus lived my life that I should have lived. He died in my place, in my entire life, the way that I go and buy groceries, the way that I interact with my neighbors, the way that I spend my money, the way that I vacation, the way that I uh, recline on the couch, the shows that I watch, everything about me centers around 
that I am wrapped, my identity is wrapped up in a love commitment with this God. So much so, I'm not even done with faith yet, so much so that it demands a risk lifestyle, a risky lifestyle on how you interact in day-to-day life. You see, I love my kids. And one of the ways that I would prove my love for them, if they were playing in the street and I saw a car coming, I would sprint. I would tear both my hamstrings. I would do whatever it took to push them out of the way and to sacrifice myself for them. Cody, jumping in front of cars is not smart. Yeah, but love commitment demands that I always act and risk differently. Just because it's not smart doesn't mean I wouldn't do it because of my love commitment for my children. In the same way, faith, according to the Bible, is described as you have a deep love commitment that requires you to act differently, not because you're trying to earn or curry God's God's favor in your life, but because you're trying to live, live in such a way that manifests to those around you that my identity is wrapped up in Him. It's wrapped up in Him. And that's what The good news of the gospel is in part. And the other part of that is that God is just. And because God is just, he will not let sins go unpunished. You know what that means? It means that all those that don't believe that their life is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus, that their assurance of salvation is wrapped up in the finished work of Jesus, will go to hell forever and ever and ever. I'm going to say that again, just just in case you didn't, you, you know that I'm not stuttering. All those that don't have their life centered around the good news of the gospel, to where it defines who they are, they have a deep love commitment and live differently because of it. All those that don't uh, that don't live differently through their love, cherished commitment, Jesus being at the centerpiece of who they are as a as a person in this world right now, will forever. Go to hell. You say, Cody, we don't talk that way anymore. We don't talk that way in church anymore. We, we've gone a little bit softer, softer these days. And you're, you know what? You're actually being bigoted. I hear it. I hear it. I know you haven't said it, but I hear it. All right? But listen, it makes sense. It makes sense. One of the persons that uh, helped me understand Hell, more than anyone else, is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. He's the guy that writes, wrote all the Chronicles of Narnia. He's also uh, been a, a Christian apologist, a writer, thinker, um, primarily uh, post-World War II, died in the early 60s. And um, this is one of the ways that he summarized the idea of hell that was really, really helpful to me. He says this, and I'm just going to read it. He says, the Bible asserts that each person will go on forever. That our soul was created, so we're not like God. We're not eternal in the past. Only God is. But we are created at a point, and then we live forever because we're made in the image of God. And that's how, he, that's how he established it. And so he says, the Bible asserts that each person will live forever. There would be a, <laughs> there would be a good deal of things that would, not, that would not be worth bothering about if I were only living for about 80 years or so. But but which I had better bother about if I am to live live forever. If my temper or jealousy only gets worse for a span of 80 years, the increase will not be very noticeable. But what does it look like 
for my temper and jealousy to grow nonstop for a million years. Hell is precisely the technical term of which that, that would be. Listen, hell is God leaving you alone. Jesus describes hell as uh, the, the full fruition of our sins manifesting itself. The full fruition of our sins really manifesting itself. And he uses four different analogies all throughout the uh, New Testament to describe what hell is like. He likens it to the worm that does not die. A hell is a place where the worm does not die. This is an image of a conscience continually being eaten away by guilt and regret. Think of the worst thing that you've ever done and got caught by. Or just think of the worst thing you've ever done, period. How do you feel? Do you feel that sense of regret coming over you? Remember how whenever someone found out what you did, how they looked at you? And how that produced such regret, such guilt in your heart? Hell is where that goes on forever and ever and ever and never stops growing because it's not mitigated by the goodness and grace of God because God is not there. Another thing that he describes is outer darkness. (laughs) Outer darkness. Total absence of God from all of his goodness. Total absence. God is light. And though (laughs) he, he dwells in unapproachable light, and then he describes hell as outer and utter total darkness. That sounds terrible. We know, and we've had case studies done, of those that live at the poles of our earth, right, uh, where the sun sometimes doesn't shine for months at a time, depression, anxiety, crazy, goes up in droves. Just by being in, in dark, what's, what's up with that? Why is that a reality? It's because there's something to be said about the outer darkness of this, uh, of this earth that God is saying, this is what hell is like. And in in, think of the, 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 the terrible crazy that goes ar- around with that. And that's, according to God, says it lasts forever. It's a place of gnashing of teeth. I'm not trying to scare you with all these things. I'm just trying to teach the Bible to you, okay? So chill out a little bit. Let's, let's bring it back in. Gnashing of teeth, okay? Let's explain it. The Jewish image here is meant for self-condemnation and self-loathing. All right, something that we've all kind of experienced whenever we just get tired of COVID-19 and looking at our phones like, oh, this is just the worst. I'm made for more than this. According to Jesus, that exists in hell forever and ever and grows exponentially for all of eternity. Isn't this terrible? And then fire. Hell is a place of fire. You say, really? Fire? You even go there, you, you first say that people apart from Jesus are going to go to hell, and then you bring up the, the hellfire and brimstone. What's wrong with you, Cody? It just says it. It says it in the Bible, and so I'm relaying it to you, that this is the reality of what Jesus said, that um, separation from God for all of eternity is going to be like. You see, sin is a virus. Sin is a virus, and because sin is a virus, it grows, and it doesn't ever want to stop. So therefore, your sin in eternity apart from Jesus Your pettiness, your jealousy, your foul moods, your dishonesty, your tendencies to abuse other will just ramp up forever and ever and ever. If that doesn't sound like hell, I don't know what does. Hell is the absence of God. C.S. Lewis puts it another way that really, really helps me as well, and let me just read it to you. It says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. 
What are you asking God to do is the question. To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing out every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has already done that on Calvary. See, you and I, we don't like the idea. I, I'm, I'm the same as you. Just saying, saying the words that someone would die in eternity with hell does not make me feel good. It makes me tremble. It's scary. I don't, I don't, I'm not gleefully preaching this. This is a heavy burden, but it's the reality. And Jesus has already made the way of escape. To leave them alone is the other question he asks. Alas, I'm afraid this is precisely what hell is. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. You see what he's saying? There's only two types of people. Those that fall at the feet of Jesus and say, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. No one, I can't come to the Father except through you. And those who say, God, get away from me. I'm in charge of my life. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm the Lord. You want to be Lord? Tough. I'm the Lord. And going to hell is simply this. God's saying to you, your will be done. Have it your way. And then the unmitigating presence of God's grace. See, oftentimes people, to try to disprove the existence of God, what do they say? Well, how could a loving and all-powerful God exist with so much evil and suffering in the world? Here's a thought, Christian. Here's a thought. Why is this place not hell right now? Is it not due to the common grace of God to restrain the evil hearts of men? Young men, young women, if you had uncontrollable power, if you were at the head of the most powerful nation on earth, what would keep you restrained from being able to do whatever you wanted to do? Say you were the ultimate dictator of the earth. Several people have tried. Stalin, Hitler, Mao. And what happened under their regimes? Genocide. They were restrained. They were restrained by the grace of God. Right? They were restrained. We should be thankful for the common grace of God because you know that you can't live out some of the wicked, evil things in your hearts. Why? Because you don't have the ability to. You don't have, you don't have the power to right now. No one would follow you if you shared the, de- the deep, evil thoughts in your, own, in your own heart. So, this is a scary truth. But the reality is, is this is communicating part of God's goodness. God would not be a good judge, listen to me, if he looked at your sin and at my sin and said, no, it's okay. I got you. I got you. No problem. Yeah, I got you. Imagine someone murdered uh, a, a sibling of yours. Would you be okay with a judge that says, no, no big deal. Capital punishment, no big deal. We'll sweep that under the rug. It's fine. No. You say justice. We need justice to be served. And God is a good God by displaying his justice to those that rebel against the ultimate good. You see, the pro- why, one of the reasons why this is so hard for us to believe and understand is because me and you, we don't think God is the ultimate source of goodness. Our, our hearts are that wicked 
You see, we come to God with distrust, especially before we come to Christ. We're constantly distrusting God and saying, you know what, God, you're, I, I don't know if you're good in this area. I don't know why you allowed this evil and suffering over here. And you know what, really, you need to be on trial because I don't really understand how you could allow this, that, or the other. And you say, and I say, with our hearts, God, you're not really good. But the reality is, is God is good, and he displays his goodness by his cosmic justice. And he says in the book of Revelation that he will one day wipe every single tear from every single eye, that there will be no hidden thing. Look, uh, Paul says at one point, according to my gospel, God will judge the wicked thoughts of every single human heart. Isn't that scary? Isn't that terrifying? But listen to me. This is why it's good news. Because he is not an arbitrary judge picking winners and losers. He is saying justice will be served on every single sin that has ever been committed. This is a good judge. This is a very good judge. You say, Cody, I don't like that part of him. I don't like this part of God. You know what? C.S. Lewis says, if there's one doctrine that I could remove from Christianity, it would be the doctrine of hell. But I cannot, because without the doctrine of hell, we would not have a good God. If you're new here, welcome. Um, We're not always this intense here at Redeemer Church, but every once in a while, whenever the text provides, we're going to be faithful to the text and try to expound what it means to follow the God of the Bible the God of the Bible. And so this is the truth and justice of God over here, and this is a good thing. All right, let's swing over here to the beauty of God in the tension of his glory, the tension of his glory. Uh, This is manifested in our passage whenever it says, he shows steadfast love, mercy, and grace to a thousand generations. So we talked about how he will by no means pardon the guilty, that sin and hell is a reality and it will be dealt with either on the cross of Jesus or in hell for eternity. But let's look at the other side of this tension. That God loves sinners. That he loves those that have rebelled against him. This is amazing. And it doesn't make any sense. Remember what the Jewish commentator said. When Messiah comes, he will explain. He will explain the tension of his truth and beauty right here. But let's look. And I think what's amazing about the Old Testament is in the Old New Testament, we have a lot of uh, story through the Gospels. Really, it's not just a laundry list of this is right doctrine and theology. Study it and read it. Memorize it. There you go. What are the Gospels? It's the story of Jesus. It talks about his, his life. It talks about his birth. It talks about what he did. It talks about in the Gospel of Luke how he went, went to the temple and the, the people were amazed, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers were all amazed at his intellect. And then it talks all leading up to his death. It talks all about that. Isn't that, isn't that amazing that we kind of get a, a, a story of who Jesus is, not just a list of tenets or ten commandments that you're supposed to believe or follow? And why is this? It's because we're made by God to experience beauty. And the, one of the primary ways that we experience beauty in our culture is, is how? Through stories. <laughs> Through stories. Notice that all the great stories have a common thread in them. 
every single, every single story has a great thread, thread in them. Let's, let's, let's just highlight three. Chronicles of Narnia. Chronicles of Narnia uh, ha- is a great timeless story. Uh, Lord of the Rings. They keep reinventing it and remaking it and redoing it again. Why? Because it's an amazing story that pulls on our heartstrings, and there's something, something transcendent about that story, right? Uh, even Harry Potter. You're like, why is this such a great, you know, give me that. I'm not talking about witchcraft or anything like that. I'm just like, why, why is this something that has captured the imagination of our culture? Why? Because every single one of these stories, you want to know what the silver thread is? Self-sacrificing love that keeps others from sure doom. Every single one of those stories has some character or a group of characters who sacrifice at, at infinite cost to themselves out of their love and devotion for other people that keeps them from the surety of impendent doom. How does Chronicles of Narnia do it? Well, Aslan, right? Dying for the traitor Edmund who just showed up out of nowhere, who was the king of all of Narnia, who rose in triumphantly. And then there was this little twerp, Edmund, who was, who was a, a rebel and traitor and who sold out the entire army, the entire people. And what does Aslan say? I will die in his place. Justice has to be served, but I will die on the stone table for that traitor. Harry Potter. Why is that a good story? You say, Cody, I don't know. Witchcraft, and we're like secular and evil and all that. No, no. Harry Potter is a great story because of the first chapter of the very first book. The boy who lived. What happened? Lily Potter gave her life, dying sacrificially at the the hand of Lord Voldemort so that the boy could live. And so we have a vested interest in the rest of Harry's life. Why? Because someone died in his place. And the same thing with Lord of the Rings, the most insignificant person in all of Middle-earth, a hobbit who said, I will bear the burden of, of the ultimate ring. I will, I will wear this. I will keep this. I will take this, and I will sacrifice. I will sacrifice my life to destroy the evil hold that the ring has on everyone. Evil men cannot stand this, but I will take the burden myself so that the curse of this dreadful ring will be gone forevermore. And what's amazing about the Old Testament is it shares the love of God over and over and over again through story. One of my favorite forms of this, and it's rated PG-19 or something like this, it's the book of Hosea. And I'm going to, uh, don't worry, uh, parents, I'm, I'm going to keep it PG for the sake of, but uh, it is not a PG book if you've read it. But it shares the amazing story of God's love for us. And if you know anything about it, Hosea is the story of a prophet who was given one of the most unusual assignments in all of the Bible. God said to him, good job, you're a prophet, you have the anointing of the Spirit of God, now I'm going to use you. And I can just imagine Hosea being like, yes, God called, you know, brought up my number, this is amazing, all right, Lord, here I am, send me, what do you want me to do? And he goes, go marry a prostitute. What? What? This is, my, this is my assignment? Read your Bibles, people. Yes, this is his assignment. This is his assignment. This is what he's called to go and do. Go and marry a prostitute. And he goes and marry. I haven't even told you the, the worst part. 
The prostitute's name was Gomer. I mean, that's just rough, all right? If anyone's, no one's named Gomer here, all right? I can say that. That's just rough. So his wife's name was, was Gomer, and, and she, was a, she was a prostitute, which means he had to go buy her from the sex slave trade. That's how he got her. He had to go purchase his wife in a, in a way, this is our story too. Because we're just like the Israelites. We're just like Gomer. We're someone that has sold ourselves off to the highest bidder. And we need someone to rescue us. And that's the story of Hosea. He goes and he buys her. And he loves her. And he doesn't just commit, um, you know, um, at a certain level. He goes all in. He cherishes her. He has children with her. And as soon as the child is born, you know what Gomer does? She leaves. She goes and prostitutes herself even more. And she left the loving arms of her godly husband, who was the prophet of God, and ran away to former lovers who did nothing but abuse her, hurt her, use her for nothing. And God says one of the most profound things in all of the Bible to display his steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness, and grace. He says to Hosea, go again. Love this woman again, an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the people of God, though they turn to other gods. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing? And Hosea, can't you imagine, just put yourself in Hosea's shoes. What? Lord, I answered the call the first time. I figured that was enough. You want me to go again? And God says, yes, go again. And what God was trying to say is, he says, you are just like Gomer. You see, I redeemed you. I bought you. I placed you before for me. And I said, you are my beloved. I cherish you. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. And then we run off into our former slave masters. And we say, abuse me some more. I don't, I don't enjoy. I, I have this spiritual amnesia of who I am in the beloved arms of God. And Hosea goes. He buys her back, and he goes again and again and again, so much so that it says that Hosea, who was most likely a rich man whenever he was called to be a prophet, bankrupted himself just to buy his wife back. He lost all of his fortune just so he can gain her, the unfaithful wife. And this is what's amazing, is God says, this is my love for you. Though you run away from me a thousand times, I do not care. I will go again and again and again, even though you hate me, even though you sell yourself, even though you, you prefer abusers over me, I will come to you again and again and again. This is amazing. Hosea verse 11, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 8 says this. Oh, this is God speaking. And uh, hear it as God speaking to you. How can I give you up? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me. You know what this means? God has wrapped up all of his happiness in the happiness of you. 
Everyone that says, yeah, Jesus is mine, Uh, he lived, died, resurrected in my place, all of his happiness is wrapped up in your happiness. Are you happy in God? Because he will come over and over and over and over again, reveal himself over and over and over again until you say, my God and my King, my Savior, my friend, now I will find the ultimate happiness in this life wrapped up in knowing you. Is that you? You see, whenever Stephanie and I had our third kid, Cannon, we realized really quickly that we were outnumbered, and it was scary. Um, it was really, really scary. But this is what we noticed. Whenever we first had Cannon, uh, we had four, four kids, three kids under four. And uh, I don't know if this is an exact science, but I'm pretty sure that kids under four years old are for sure not happy at least one-third of the day, all right? And we had three kids, so do the math. They could line up their unhappiness uh, stacked on top of each other to where uh, at some point we were unhappy all day long. Why? Because our happiness is wrapped up in the happiness of our children. And this is how our God looks at us. He says, I am not happy until you find your ultimate source of happiness, that you, until you revolve the centerpiece of your life around me, around me. And that's my hope for this church, is that we recognize the steadfast love, mercy, and grace of God, that all, all that God is doing in the world is to say, look at me. See the glory of who I am. See what I've done in your place. And then place your heart in my hands so that your holiness So that the way that you act, the way that you talk, the way that you spend your money, the way that you vacation, the way that you think through your relationships, the way that you go to work and treat your uh, employers and employees is all wrapped up in knowing and delighting in God himself. In the glory of God, because he's wrapped up his happiness in your happiness. What does this mean? The Westminster... Shorter Catechism asks this question. Um, What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the tension of his name. That's part of the tension of his name, is enjoying God. How do you glory in Christ? Do you enjoy him? Do you look at him? Do you look at what Jesus has done in your place and you say, all my happiness is wrapped up in that truth? All of it is because, listen, listen, what Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross is he settled the tension. He settled the tension because, remember, he will by no means clear the guilty. And what happened on the cross is that all of the sins of the redeemed who placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus all was poured out on him. God is just. He is good. He is so good. You know what that means? It means that you, Christian, now stand before God, perfect, spotless, clean. And if that doesn't move your heart, if that truth is not at the centerpiece of your life, then dare I say you have not found the happiness of your life wrapped up in the good news of the gospel. This is the thing that we do not have, we cannot overpass 
and say, yeah, I get that, Cody, go deeper. No, the depth has to be in that. The depth has to be in the gospel. You have to work it in into the brokenness of every part of your life. It has to go deeper and deeper still. It says, you know what, that's okay. It's okay if the bank account is here because my hope is found in Christ. It's okay that, I, that uh, I studied as hard as I could and I still failed. Why? Because my identity is in Christ. It is okay that people look at me as, as if I'm weird or a goober or whatever. Why? Because I, I'm, not trying to fend, uh, I'm, try, I'm not trying to find my identity in what other people think about me. My identity is wrapped up in Christ. This is the only way. This is the only way that the tension is resolved. And turn with me to... This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3. I'll conclude with this. Romans chapter 3 is a beautiful passage, verse, starting in verse 22. Um, and it says this. It says, The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see what he is drawing on right here? He is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 34. Just and the justifier. He is full of absolute truth. Therefore, he is just, and he is full of absolute beauty, which means he is the justifier. It's as if the judge pronounced the sentence on a capital punishment against you being the the one who offended him, throws down the gavel and says, death to you. And then he gets off the judge's seat and goes and stands in your place and says, bailiff, take me in. I'm serving his punishment. This is what God has done. This is the beauty of the tension of his glory. He is both just and the justifier. He is so good. He is so good that he will by no means let the pardon go, let the guilty go un, unpardoned or go pardoned. But he's also so good that he loves you, that he cherishes you. And like Gomer and Hosea, he goes back again and again and again, and says, embrace my love for you. Embrace it. Treasure it. Find out. This is what your life is about. So how do we know that we've had it? A couple of applications. How do we know that we've really faithfully wrestled with this? Let me ask you this. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? How do you know that you're living for the glory and treasure and delight of God, how, how and why do you pray? Is God some cosmic vending machine for you? Say, God, give me this, and maybe I'll believe in you. God, if you do this for me, then maybe I will um, grace you with some of my faith. Or, whenever your happiness is wrapped up in God, you say, God, I'm coming to you. Why? Because I delight in you. I delight in your presence. Your presence is worth more than life itself. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? Ask yourself that question as we worship, as we reflect, as we take communion together. Listen, 
What do you talk about? Here's my next question of application. What is naturally something that comes, comes out of you? What do you talk about? What brings you delight and joy? That's something that you are glorying in. I tell you what, I've talked a whole lot more about collective pour-overs than I have about Jesus this week. Why? <laughs> because I, just, I was like, oh, this is so good. i got to tell everyone I know, you and I, listen to me, you and I are great evangelists of the thing that has captured our heart. We are. I don't want any more nonsense of like, you know what, I just can't tell people about Jesus because of this and that. And that. Listen, you know what, that, hey, listen, I'm right there. And Jesus is saying, Cody, give me your heart again. And he's saying the same to you. But listen, we are natural evangelists. We can't help but tell people what we glory and enjoy. We can't help it. I talk about the office all the time. I give office jokes all the time. Why? I have great delight in it. I talk about, <laughs> here's something polemical. I am a great evangelist to Dirt Cheap. Have you been to Dirt Cheap? That place is amazing, all right? Amazing. If you haven't been, you need to go, all right? Some of y'all are going to be really disappointed <laughs> whenever you go. But it's not hard for me to tell. Why? Because somewhere in my heart, it's captured me. It's captured me. Can we pray and ask God as a church, will you capture my heart's affection to be only and all for Jesus? And then what will he do? What will he do? Isn't that amazing? Do you feel it? Do you sense it? And the tension of God's glory is wrapped up in his name. And this is the greatest news in the history of history. Let it captivate your heart. And whenever it does, whenever it does, I promise you, it'll change how you go to him, and it'll change how you go to other people. That's what he wants. For you to love him with all his heart, soul, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as yourself. In conclusion, I wonder, I wonder, what has your heart's utmost affection and desire? What are you excited about right now? Can you beg with me to God and make him the centerpiece of all that we are? And then remember day in and day out, that he's the God that pursues us constantly, even when we've run away from him. That's amazing. It's the best news in the history of history. And my prayer for you is that you believe it, that you put your faith completely into it. Let's pray.